welcome to the JSGC Policy Podcast. Thanks for joining our conversation between joint state staffers about various policy topics in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I'm Susan Elder, and I'm here today with Glenn Pasowitz, who's our executive director here at Joint State. Hello, Susan. And Brian DeWalt, who is our sound engineer and co-host. Hello. And also Allison Kobsowitz, who's an analyst who worked on this report. Hi, Susan. Today, we're discussing the Opioid Abuse Child Impact Task Force. Glenn, so you are the project manager on this report. Can you give us a little bit of background information about the task force, how it came to be, and also the process that they went through? Sure, Susan. It was established by Act 2 of 2022. It was adopted in January earlier this year. And the focus of the task force was to be on improving the safety, well-being, and permanency of substance-exposed infants and other young children affected by their parents' substance use disorders. The legislation put together a group uh, that was made up of secretaries from the Departments of Drug and Alcohol Programs, the Department of Human Services, the Department of Health, and it included appointments uh, made by the leadership of all four caucuses, so the leadership of the House and the Senate, and also appointments from the governor. And DHS, Department of Human Services Secretary Meg Sneed, was appointed by the governor to serve as the chair of the task force. And other members included doctors, child and family advocates, and people who work in the field of opioid use disorder. Overall, we had seven hybrid meetings. They were open to the public. Most of the members were present physically in a room. We we met in, in, a, in a public setting. Uh, others joined by Zoom. And we did have occasionally a couple people from the public joining by Zoom. I believe we had at least one meeting where there were a couple people from the public came in and sat in and observed, you know, and listened. The meetings themselves, uh, like most joint state advisory committee meetings, were roundtable discussions. In this case, they were facilitated by the chair, Secretary Sneed, and those discussions provided the material that led to the report itself. Different topics of discussion prompted our staff to dive in further. Can you give us some examples of topics covered? We spent a lot of time talking about screening for neonatal abstinence syndrome and screening that would happen during prenatal visits, getting the patient's history with substance use, whether it is illicit or illegal substance use, or if they're prescribed medications, or if it is a person who is going through medication-assisted treatment for an opioid use disorder. So the reason for that, looking at, at all those different aspects of it, is because Many of the uh, substances, particularly opioids, can cross the barrier through the placenta and have an effect on the infant before birth. Whether or not there should be screening, what type of screening, what type of questions should be asked by a healthcare provider were roundly debated by the task force. Another big one was how well the systems are equipped to take care of these infants and children whether they're being identified through a school setting, an education setting, through a childcare setting, what happens when there is a report that maybe, you know, there is a substance use problem in a family, how that is reported to people who can provide the help. 
by law, and we can maybe get into this later in the podcast, but by law, reports of this have to go through child line, which is also the line that's used for child abuse cases, whether or not they are instances of child abuse. And then they get separated. Again, we can get into this a little more later, but they get separated into whether it's they're providing information or whether there is an actual suspected case of child abuse that is resulting from the opioid use disorder. So those were a couple big topics that swirled around in the task force from the very beginning all the way through the the final meeting. While we're still discussing some of the background of this report, this is not the first time Joint State Government Commission has done a report on opioids. And Glenn, I believe you've even worked on several of them in the past. So can you tell us how this report builds off some of the previous work we've done here? Well, actually, this particular report doesn't because it was a whole new group, this task force. We haven't worked with them before. They were new to us. We were new to them. But it did help from a staff perspective that we were familiar with the vocabulary, with the different agencies, the different stakeholders involved. And so it helped us get up to speed. And we were a little more comfortable dealing with the subject matter. We didn't have as steep of a learning curve as we would have otherwise. So our background definitely helped us communicate with the task force uh, better than if we had stepped into this for the first time. Glenn, can you describe the problem of neonatal abstinence syndrome in Pennsylvania? And in the report, are there any statistics you want to bring up to describe the issue? Sure. First, we'll take a look at what neonatal abstinence syndrome is. And I should also preface that by saying there are different terms that are used. Some use neonatal abstinence syndrome. Sometimes it is broadened to say substance-exposed infants being that there can be a a danger or risk to an infant's well-being, whether or not they actually were diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome. But it's a medical condition. It refers to a group of problems that can occur when a baby suffers withdrawal after being exposed to certain drugs while in the womb. And the exposure stops abruptly upon birth, so they go into a sudden withdrawal. And it's seen as, as having an effect on the central nervous system and the gastrointestinal tract and their autonomic responses. Symptoms would include hyperirritability, jitteriness, tremors. They can have seizures, heart problems such as tachycardia. They can suffer from hypothermia because they're unable to regulate their bodies, sweating, yawning. They can have increased muscle tone because they're constantly tensing up their bodies. Uh, For GI symptoms, include they have poor feeding, regurgitation, vomiting, they have diarrhea. Actually, it's said that heroin withdrawal, they're uh, notably severe gastrointestinal problems. So basically, they, they go through all these problems, and then ongoing, there's a failure to thrive. So Pennsylvania has established definition, the the Commonwealth has established, Department of Health established it as a diagnosis in the neonatal period, which is from birth up to 28 days of life, who has the symptoms because of a parental exposure. The parents were residents of Pennsylvania before birth. They started using this definition when they were collecting data in January of 2018. Overall, the incidence of it tracks along with where the opioid problem is worst in Pennsylvania, which is in the rural areas. The data show that when when you look at babies who are whose births are covered 
by Medicaid, or rather through the state's medical assistance program, I should say more properly, um, in some counties like Elk County, Greene County, some of the other rural counties, it is up to one in four. 25% of the babies born who are covered by medical assistance are being diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome. It is a severe problem in those rural places, particularly because in some of them, for example, in Greene County, there is simply an absence of prenatal care. The care just doesn't exist for the people who are there. So the, and the rates per thousand were have been climbing over the past several years. It got up to over 71 per thousand infants in Pennsylvania were diagnosed with it. It, it did drop off slightly over the last uh, two years or so. I was just going to say that is, that is strikingly high. Yeah. And I also wanted to point out that if listeners are interested in viewing the specific breakdown by county, they can go to the link in the show notes on page 19 and 20 and right around there in the report, you have the breakdown by year. So it's 2016 to 2020 by county. There are data in the report that look at the number of children who are removed from their family home where there's a substance use disorder that would prevent them from being safe and well cared for at home. And again, it tracks along the rural counties where it is more severe. You know, Green, Junietta, Montour, Mifflin, Wayne, the rate per thousand children is between four and six children per thousand who can't live with their parents because of substance use. Many of them end up in kinship care. So they move in with relatives, you know, grandparents, particularly joint state did a report on grand families where the grandparents are stepping in. And that is largely driven by substance use, but others go into the foster care system. Next, I want to ask about what is the perinatal quality collaborative? There are different groups, you know, in different parts of the country, and they're either multi-state networks or a single state. And these have teams that are working to improve the quality of care for birthing parents and babies. It's supported by the CDC for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But basically, this is where the healthcare providers, the big hospital networks get together. And Pennsylvania's started in 2019, after there had been several years of work leading up to it. It is supported by DDAP, the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs, by the Department of Human Services and the Department of Health. And, you know, like I said, the big healthcare providers And the idea is that they are working on setting standards for care for infants who are diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome. They are working on education for doctors and healthcare providers so that they can recognize it and address it according to care guidelines that the group is establishing. It's an ongoing group. They are collecting data. They are trying to get more and more hospitals involved. I think at this point, Currently, there are 42 birthing hospitals, 14 health plans, and 81% of babies that are born in Pennsylvania are born in hospitals that are participating in the PQC, the Perinatal Quality Collaborative. Allie, what are plans for safe care? So the development of a plan of safe care is required upon the identification of a substance-affected infant and is accompanied by, like Glenn was talking about earlier, a notification to Childline, which is the Child Wellbeing or Child Abuse Hotline. 
and the Plan of Safe Care is a document that lists and directs services and supports to provide for the safety and well-being of an infant affected by substance abuse, withdrawal symptoms resulting from prenatal drug exposure, or a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. These plans of safe care are meant to direct both the infant and the family and caregivers to services, including substance use treatment for the parents. So plans of safe care must be initiated by responsible parties from the healthcare field and county agencies, but the participation in the plan by the family is voluntary. So they're not required to accept the services that are offered to them. Can you give us a little bit of a description of how they differ from conventional drug treatment plans? Plans of safe care differ from other drug treatment plans because they're only initiated by the reporting of a substance-affected infant under the age of one. So there's a, a very narrow population that is even eligible for a plan of safe care. And they intentionally take a holistic approach to the infant's health and safety by incorporating the family and the substance use needs of the family, not only the infant. If I can add, this was a big point of discussion among the task force members because the reporting goes through child line and there's a feeling that there can be inherent bias on the part of the person taking the report that would possibly route the call through to become a child welfare situation where there is suspected abuse rather than simply gathering the information to help the, the system put together a plan of safe care for the family. There were a lot of concerns, I could say, over how these calls are being handled, whether they're being handled in an unbiased way that doesn't introduce stigma and racial profiling on the part of the people taking the report. There's some disagreement as to how voluntary the program really is also because some people still feel that there's retribution if you refuse, even though it wouldn't be recorded that it was refused, but that women feel like they don't have a choice to say no because there could be worse consequences down the line if they refuse the voluntary service that's offered to them. In the podcast in the past, we've talked a bit about warm handoffs or continuum of care so what happens after these infants turn one? How are they coordinating the services for the next stage of the child's life? That is a great question. The one thing that I do know is they're not tracked. Like there's no data that's following them, which was a concern that some task force members brought up of not being able to analyze like long-term outcomes for infants that have NAS. There isn't surveillance system that tracks their outcomes as they go to adulthood. Mm. The number is surveilled of the diagnosis, but there's not necessarily a way to keep track of the infants after they don't require services anymore. It's built into the guidance for plans of safe care that when it's determined that the services are no longer needed, the group that would be working with that infant and that family is disbanded. So the group formed in the plan for safe care is more of a stopgap measure to address the needs of a child with neonatal abstinence syndrome until they're one. So how long does recovery take? Is it completed by age one? I think that's, again, that's another problem is they don't really know for sure. Children who've had NAS or, or one of the other substance exposures can have cognitive delays. They can have behavioral delays and problems that go through much longer through childhood. So it's not like they go through their plan of safe care or they make it through the, the NICU in the hospital that then they're okay. I think, you know, they can still show the effects and deficits 
ongoing. But so far as we're aware, there aren't data that it's at least that that the state is tracking that show what the outcomes are. And that is, again, one of the uh, recommendations made by the task force was that there be further studies done to see what the long-term, what the outcomes are, understanding that it could be years before you know how somebody turns out, whether a person is going to be 10, 12, 20 years old before maybe you're able to see, oh, this this person worked out okay, or this person continued to have problems. I do know that after, say, age one, a situation where there's substance abuse goes into the child welfare system. There's not that bubble of plan of safe care like there is for the infant. That becomes a regular child welfare case at that point. Yes, if there's a substance-affected child over the age of one, it would be treated as a child welfare case. Allie, looking at one of the first major recommendations of the task force, what are some steps Pennsylvanians can take to address the stigma attached to substance use disorder? The task force emphasized the importance of proper education on substance use disorders for any healthcare provider or social worker who would come into contact with an individual with an SUD. The use of non-judgmental language and attitudes from healthcare workers while they're doing screenings, and then non-punitive policies from social services as they're trying to provide treatment may increase the likelihood of those with an SUD seeking treatment. Do you have any examples of people using the non-judgmental language that might have come up in your research? With the screening questions, the example that they gave was an attitude of a doctor or a nurse asking the questions. And if one of the answers or a couple of the answers start to match up and you're seeing that there might be some substance use, that their demeanor changes and they have a neutral expression while you're asking the questions that doesn't show judgment or concern or any kind of threat of consequences as you're asking the questions. Because if there is a perception of that judgment, it could skew their answers. They might not want to answer truthfully. And for the policies themselves, if you had an example of that too. Not as necessarily a specific example, but a, a similar idea of if we are trying to offer treatment to people with an SUD, we don't want to criminalize their behavior or punish them for addiction. We want to just offer solutions and offer treatment so that people will not be afraid to ask for help, to ask for treatment. They want to be assured that those options are available to them without a prison sentence or like their children being taken away from them because of their addiction. And then on an individual level, Pennsylvanians can remember that an SUD is a mental disorder, not a moral failure, and treat those who suffer from it with compassion and respect. One of the recommendations of the advisory committee was an ongoing working group. Can you guys tell us how that working group recommendation is different than what we already have when you look at existing state government and advocacy groups in the local communities? The one thing that the task force realized was that there are so many big questions to be answered and problems to be solved, starting with some of the information that that we don't have with regard to, you know, long-term outcomes and such, they felt in order to follow through with the recommendations that they were making, because most of the, the recommendations are for this group to do this working group that would include the three departments. So the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs, Health and Human Services, 
along with other people from the community, people with experience, whether it's lived experience or working experience, that they would get together and work specifically on these recommendations that are in the report. Because in, in terms of an overall oversight from the state down, those aren't necessarily all being addressed by whoever and whatever is out there working now. So they wanted to okay. continue their work by addressing those particular recommendations. That makes sense. Thanks. Who would form this group? Is it just kind of in the executive branch or more of an informal arrangement? I think it was the intent of the of the departments that the departments would get together and do that. They did not specifically say that they would be looking for the legislature to put this together for them, that they would start working on this on their own initiative. So, Glenn, what is the Pennsylvania Department of Health's role in addressing neonatal abstinence syndrome? The department sees itself as addressing it through three approaches, through surveillance initiatives, through prevention and treatment initiatives, and through the Thriving Families Learning Opportunity. Now, the first one, surveillance initiatives, the department has been gathering data and becoming more sophisticated in the ways that it's gathering the data and building out its database to provide a basis for policy recommendations moving forward. They're tracking data such as the number of cases by facility, by the mother's county of residence, by the type of treatment the infant receives. And also they're collecting data on pregnancy-associated deaths. So in terms of prevention, the department provides funding for county and municipal health departments to provide home visiting services to women. And they're working with a number of models for different home visiting programs one that they are promoting is called the Centering Pregnancy Program. It's a patient-centered model of group prenatal care. And studies have shown that group care has positive influences on women's health outcomes after pregnancy. So that's one that the department is supporting. Now, the other one is interesting. It's the Thriving Families Learning Opportunity. That's a specific program that the department is a member of. Pennsylvania is one of 10 states chosen by the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials and the American Public Human Services Association. And the idea is that the group and the 10 states that are participating are working on the development of a prevention-focused child welfare system. And each of them came up with a work plan for goals for their team and Pennsylvania is working on the impact of substance use disorder on children pre-birth to five years old. So those are the three main prongs that the Department of Health is working through at this point. The data, thriving families opportunity, and prevention initiatives. And I should add, the prevention initiatives also include writing out guidelines for hospitals and for families as to where they can find help, what types of help are available if they need it. And they're working on models or programs that include that information with a package of things that you get when you have a baby in the hospital and you're leaving the hospital. The task force came up with different ideas about how that could be facilitated, maybe like a refrigerator magnet, or they can provide that information so it's at ready. There's a phone number that they can call if they need help. So the report includes a list of Department of Drug and Alcohol programs for women are there any that you would like to call attention to? Yeah, sure. So we have a table on page 69 of the report that shows 
these programs for women and breaks them out into if they're a residential program or a halfway house, if they are for pregnant women, and if they are for women with dependent children. And I want to highlight the uh, women with dependent children column because that is a category of programs that was emphasized by the task force because sometimes women with children will avoid entering treatment if they're not able to bring their children along because they don't want to separate their family or risk losing custody of their children. So some programs allow women to remain with their children while receiving Mm -hmm. treatment. And in many cases, they even provide classes and exercises on parenting skills and provide services and support for the children. These programs strengthen the mother's recovery and bond with their child and have been demonstrated to reduce the risk of additional substance-exposed births. During a task force meeting, it was suggested that DDAP compile a more detailed resource delineating the exact age ranges of dependent children that are allowed at each facility listed because some facilities have a cap, maybe like only up to the age of 13 for dependent children or something like that. So they were suggesting that it just be even more clearly laid out where different ages of children would be accepted at residential programming. And I think in in some ways, they try to make it as home-like as possible for the kids. So the kids can leave in the morning, go to school, and uh, and their mothers do whatever they're doing through the rehab program. And then they come home at the end of the school day. And it's just like coming home to a, a private residence. So for the final recommendation listed in the report, can you help explain to our listeners how programs designed to aid low-income families will ultimately benefit children and families of people with substance use disorder? Economic policies that support parents by giving them more consistent hours, increased wages, childcare subsidies, and parental leave help remove some common parenting pressures for low-income families. Addiction is multifaceted, and so are the circumstances and environmental factors that can lead to children being removed from their homes. Removing some other parenting barriers can allow a parent who is using substances to focus on treatment and keep their children healthier and safer. I thought that was very eloquently put. It's time for us to wrap up our conversation today. If you'd like more information from our study on the Opioid Abuse Child Impact Task Force, please check out the link to our website in the show notes. The music on our podcast is provided by Joseph McDade. Thanks and have a nice day.